There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed, Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed with them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. He offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing that you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and preached the gospel to many villages in the villages of Samaria. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you're staying in the service, would you affirm with me our trust in God's word before we look into it and start applying it to our lives? Let's say it together. All flesh is like grass in all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Amen. Well, last week we started a, a sermon series on the book of Acts. We are being selective. We're looking at conversion stories in this book. Uh, and um, my, my goals, I have two goals I, I mentioned last time, is one is to explore how the gospel affects our lives, how we personally are, are affected and changed by the message of grace. But secondly, I, I also would like to look at how, how we can be more effective in sharing that gospel with others. So both how it affects us, how it affects others, and how we can share it with others. And so we come to a conversion story now in chapter 8, as, as Naomi read for us, that is difficult to interpret. Because we're not sure if this conversion is genuine. 
Was Simon truly converted and just needed to be corrected by the apostles? Or was he never a genuine Christian and was only trying to use the Spirit to gain power and influence? Did he repent after Peter's rebuke? Or did he become one of the first heretics, as many church fathers believed? Now, I'm not going to settle this issue for you, unfortunately, today. The commentators are divided. Uh, There's all sorts of opinions because on the one hand, his conversion is described in the very same way that any conversion is described. He believed, he was baptized, everything seems to be fine, and yet the rest of the story makes us question whether it was genuine or not. Now, I think this ambiguity is actually intentional. I think it's meant to help us think about the nature of our own conversion. I think it's forcing us to consider whether I am truly converted, whether I truly believe, and whether I am connected with Jesus directly, or I have other agendas that I bring to my Christianity. So let's consider this passage, and let's make it personal, let's make it relevant to us, but let's consider this passage under three headings. First, I'd like to look at an impressive power, impressive power. Secondly, I want to look at a powerful message. And then finally, I want to look at the amazing grace. Impressive power, powerful message, and amazing grace. Okay, so what do we know about Simon? Well, look at verse 9 and following with me. It says, There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God and is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Simon was a magician, but not like a magician like we think of magicians today, right? Magic tricks, you just go and you see a show of things you know are not real, but they feel real and it just amuses us. He wasn't that kind of a magician. He was more like a, a, a miracle worker or a more like a medium or, or like a sorcerer kind of magician. It's not unusual uh, for these kinds of people to exist in the ancient world. In fact, in Acts 13, just a few chapters later, we encounter another magician like Simon. So apparently, there were lots of magicians that would amaze people with their miracles, their healings, their connection with the afterworld, and people would follow them and pay money to get their services. And Simon's impressive power lay in his ability to amaze and impress his followers. That's why they followed him. He was amazing. He did things that they couldn't explain, and whether it was demonic power, which was often involved in this, or it was just his ability to deceive and skill, we don't know. But it was impressive, and so people paid attention to him. And that attention resulted in praising him. He thought he was somebody great. People thought he was great. People even said that he could control divine power, that he had some kind of supernatural power that he could use to help others for a fee. Now, he was called great, and he certainly thought of himself as as great. Now, as an aside, forgive me, just a little bit of a diversion here, but it's hard to relate to a first-century Samaritan magician. It is to me. I don't know if maybe you have an easier time connecting with him. It's hard for me. I'm not in that world. I don't do magic tricks. But when you think about his heart, 
When you think about the mechanisms of his heart, this is where it gets really close to life for me. Don't we like to impress others and get their praise and have people think of ourselves as great? Isn't that true? So if we just just leave that first century world of magicians a little bit to the side and just look a little bit deeper into who the person was, who Simon really was, it becomes very applicable to us. Are you not stuck in that cycle of presenting yourself as, as, as somebody more important than you are, better than you are, in a way that, that people should think more highly of you? Do you not crave their approval? Do you not want to impress others and command their attention? Simon may have been a first century Samaritan miracle worker, but his heart worked exactly as ours. It's this kind of attention-craving and approval-seeking and praise-loving self-centered heart that needs the gospel to confront it. This this is where this story, to me, comes alive because I'm like him. I'm, I'm like Simon. I want you to think better of me. I want to impress you. I want you to respect me and to praise me and think I'm great. And so I look at this story and I am once again faced with my own need for the gospel to change my heart. Because my heart is like that. So the gospel has to come in. God's grace has to come in and confront that and change that. And I think that's what this story is about. Did it happen for him? We're not sure. But will it happen for us is the better question. Is it happening in my heart right now? Am I confronted with the gospel and my heart is being changed from that approval-seeking, praise-loving kind of a heart to to a a free heart, a joyful heart, a heart that serves others, a heart that is self-forgetful? That's where we're going today. I want to keep that goal in mind because we want to get there. We want to be changed like that. Okay, so Philip comes to Samaria. Now, Philip was a deacon in the church. You can read about Philip in Acts 6. He's one of the many believers who left Jerusalem because of the persecution. And he started spreading the gospel beyond Jerusalem and Judea, where many people were doing that. In fact, persecution spread the church out. It kind of scattered them, and people went in all sorts of directions. They remembered that Jesus told them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you at Pentecost, then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. They did that. Well, now there's Judea, now there's Samaria, now there's the ends of the world. And so they went, and they started sharing the gospel in all these different areas, and Philip goes to Samaria. Goes to Samaria, and a revival breaks out verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. That's a good good phrase, right? He proclaimed to them the Christ. Not some other Christ, but this one, this Messiah. That's his point. That's his message. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now the whole city seems to be coming to Christ. Everybody seems to be attracted to this this message that Philip is preaching about Jesus. And Simon too, this magician too, believes and is baptized. Verse 13. Follows Philip 
is amazed at signs and miracles performed by him and seems to be a genuine follower of Christ. But here, we, the, the, the readers, the careful readers that we are, we need to ask this question. Did Simon believe the gospel simply because Philip's power was more impressive than his own? Did he simply encounter a stronger kind of magic? It seems like Simon was so amazed at the miracles of Philip that he wanted to share in that power, in that work, in that life. It seems like a fair assessment considering what he proposed to Peter and John. Remember, he asked them if he could buy that power, which was common in, in the world of magicians. They would just use money to buy special things. They would sell supernatural things to others. So it seems like a fair assessment at this point would be to say that he was attracted to that power and it just seemed more powerful than what he had. But Peter and John were apostles and they were sent to Samaria from Jerusalem after the apostles got word that the gospel was received there. Remember, Philip is a deacon. He doesn't have apostolic authority. The Holy Spirit has not fallen on the believers there yet, which is a little bit different. Typically, the pattern is we believe and the Holy Spirit comes. This is why we believe. But here, God sovereignly delays the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's like another Pentecost. There's the preaching of the Word. There's the preaching and the acceptance of the Gospel. But then the Spirit comes later, and the Spirit comes through the apostles. Now, I think the way God works in the book of Acts is that there is an apostolic authentication that needs to happen at every stage of the ministry. Remember, in Jerusalem, there's Pentecost, the Spirit comes, many people get converted, people exhibit miraculous gifts, and so that's clear. The apostles are preaching the gospel. It's, it's, it's shaped by the apostolic preaching. Then there's the Samaritan revival. Again, the apostles have to come and affirm that and approve that and say, this is real, this is part of the same movement, this is the real Christ, this is the real gospel. We will see later that Peter has to go to Cornelius' house to affirm of that conversion. Again, there's apostolic seal of approval comes there. And it's almost like God is saying, I told you you were going to proclaim the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world, and you will see the apostolic seal of approval, that all of these stages are genuine and God is really working. So the apostles come and, and give their approval. Now there was a great possibility that with this revival in Samaria, there would simply be another church. The church would be splintered. But because the apostles are involved, even given the animosity of the Jews and the Samaritans, the church is united, united around the message proclaimed by the apostles about Jesus. Now, from Simon's perspective, when Peter and John come, they seem like they're even greater than Philip. These are Philip's bosses that come. Philip couldn't give the Holy Spirit. Philip could do some remarkable stuff, certainly more impressive than what Simon could do, but Peter and John, they seem to command the power of God. They seem to be able to simply touch somebody and the Holy Spirit would go into that person. So Simon did what was typical in his world. He offered money. He says, can I have that power? The man who, is, who wants to impress, the man who wants, who wants praise, the man who, who wants to be 
an amazing person, a great person, sees an opportunity that if I can get that power, then certainly more people will love me and praise me. Verse 19, he says, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Having seen an even more impressive power, Simon thought he could purchase it and use it to amaze people and to praise him. But that's not how the gospel works. And so Peter's rebuke is swift and harsh. Peter is not messing around. He doesn't want any perception that this power can be bought or manipulated or used for someone's gain or someone's praise. He wants to stop it right here and say, this is not how this works. You cannot buy the gift of God. So verses 20 and following, Peter says, may your silver perish with you. A modern translation is to hell with your money. Probably a better translation. He's not messing around. He's saying, this is hellish, what you're saying. This is, this is demonic. You're going back to your, your old ways of a magician trying to manipulate this great power. He says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. What he's saying is you have no share in this ministry. You have no share in this work if you think that this is how we operate. This is not how we work. And then he says, your heart is not right before God. You see, Peter knows that the problem is in the heart. That the circumstances may be different, but the heart is the same. There's something in his heart that needs to change. That The gospel has to penetrate deeper into that heart. It says, repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You can see Peter was a preacher. Nobody talks like that but preachers. I can see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. You're a bad man, is what he's saying. <laughs> Peter preaches the gospel to him. And notice what he's saying. He's not saying, let me pray for you, and I will bestow the gift of forgiveness on you. Confess your sins to me, and I will grant you absolution. That's not what he's saying. Look what he's saying. He says, repent, pray to the Lord, and if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Peter's not sure, because he's not in control of God's power. God sovereignly forgives. It's God's grace. Peter knows that. Peter knows it from his own experience, by the way. And Peter says, pray and repent, and maybe God is gracious and God is merciful and he'll forgive you. He says, you pray, you go deal with God. You let the gospel penetrate your heart. Now we'll consider the, the true power in the Christian ministry in just a few minutes because Peter is contrasting that with the magic that that Simon perceives. But I want to I dwell a little bit on Simon's perception or misperception of Christianity. The kind of Christianity that Simon envisioned, the kind of Christianity he was trying to be involved in was a magical, amazing, impressive kind of Christianity. That's what he wanted. 
And while it was immediately and decisively rejected by the apostles, it remains a temptation in the church today. Have you seen it? Not a few of Christian churches approach ministry in a way that is more similar to Simon's than to Peter's. The basic thinking is that if we can impress people, they will become part of our church. If we can amaze them, they will pay attention and follow us. And there are many ways to do that. We don't all do it in the same way, but I'm afraid that that sinful mechanism in our hearts still kicks in every once in a while. There are many ways to do that. We can try to impress with miraculous healings. Lots of churches are driven by that. Come to our church, you will see miraculous things. Or, excellent organization. Never seen a church that has run as well as our church. We're on top of communication. Or slick graphics. No church is as good as their website. You should know that. <laughs> including, including ours, and our website is not super great, but because there's always that projection. There's always that, look at us. Be impressed with who we are. Let us put the best foot forward. Look at us and come to us. Could be a well-resourced children's program or a fun, entertaining youth group or concert quality sound and lights or charismatic preaching or the warmth of our community even. And none of those things are necessarily wrong. You know, it's not bad to have a website. It's not bad to pay attention to how we communicate. It's not bad to expect supernatural things God, God, for God to do in our midst. None of that is wrong. But the question is, do we trust them, those things, to impress people into following us? That's the question. Do we trust them? Do we do those things with the purpose of attracting people, impressing them, amazing them, and drawing them in? Philip and the apostles performed miracles. No question. You read the book of Acts, lots of miracles. But as we'll see in a few minutes, they knew the power to convert was not in the miracles. They knew it. They did miracles, but they knew that the power to change, the power to convert, isn't in the miracle. Henry Nouwen, in his great book on leadership, um, I'll recommend this book. It's called In the Name of Jesus. I think it's the best book on leadership that I've read. He outlined three temptations facing Christian ministers, but it's apply, I think it applies to every Christian, not just the Christian ministers. He says the three temptations to watch out for is one, to be relevant, two, to be spectacular, and three, to be powerful. To be relevant, to be spectacular, and to be powerful. And he's getting that from the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Those are the temptations that Jesus went through and overcame. If we give in to these temptations we end up with Simon's Christianity. We end up with a Christianity that proclaims our magic is stronger. We have a better kind of magic. And if you come to us, you will experience amazing things. And you should listen to us because of the amazing things we can do. I'm afraid that there's a portion of the evangelical church that is given into these temptations. Some have tried to become relevant and adapted their views to those prevailing in the culture. You've seen that. Others have tried to become spectacular 
And they've exchanged vulnerability for professionalism. You've seen that too, haven't you? And yet others have tried to become powerful and neglected God's grace that is sufficient in weakness. But magical Christianity, this kind of spectacular, powerful, amazing, impressive Christianity does not produce real disciples of Jesus. It can't do it. You can't impress people into believing in Jesus. Lord, help us, we try. But we can't do it. This is not how the gospel works. We can't impress somebody and to convince them of their sin, convince them of their repentance, convince them that forgiveness of sin is available in Jesus, that it's all by grace. You can't do that by impressing them. Dick Lucas was a minister in London, and he he would hold these uh, Tuesday lunches for all the professionals in the financial district in London. And they would come and preach the gospel to to them. And they would have like turnip soup and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't very impressive is what I'm saying. And he would just go through the verses of the Bible and he would just explain the gospel to them. And if you listen to his tape, it is utterly unimpressive. And yet there's so much power there. So Lucas said, miracles command our attention, but they cannot compel our belief. They command our attention, but they cannot compel our belief. If a person comes to the church because they are impressed with its power, they only stay as long as that power is useful to them. I remember in my ministry in Chicago, uh, in my church there, we would regularly, in those kind of the kind of neighborhood we were in, we would regularly get recovering addicts come to the church. And sometimes they would come in groups. And you can tell, and pretty soon we started figuring out which, which halfway house they were coming from. And they would come, and they would be very excited. The first, like, two or three Sundays, they would do anything you asked them to do. And I remember, like, we had people come in, and we were remodeling, and they painted, like, the whole, <laughs> the whole back room, you know. So much energy, they, and, and, and it felt genuine. It felt like they needed the Lord, they needed the church, they needed that community, they needed accountability, and then in three weeks, inevitably, they'd be gone. Why? They were attracted to the power of the church. They were working the steps, and one of the steps was they needed to be in community. They needed to be with others who would encourage them and support them and love them and accept them and put them to work because that would take their mind off of their addiction. But as soon as they went through that phase, there was the next phase that didn't include the church and it didn't include God, and they'd be gone. And I saw that happen over and over again until I started picking up on that and saying, they're not coming because of my preaching. (laughs) They're coming because they have a specific agenda, they have a specific purpose, and the church is filling that purpose for that time. But then it's done. And they're on to something else. The American showman and businessman P.T. Barnum once invited Charles Spurgeon to come and preach in America. Love to, I'd love to hear those kinds of conversations. You know, fun to be there to see these these giants of very different industries and very different worlds, right, even communicate with each other. Well, we have a glimpse here. B.T. Barnum, of course, knew that Charles Spurgeon had a huge church in London, and he would have lots of people come, and people would sometimes would have to wait. They would have to show a ticket to get into his church, and, and Spurgeon would regularly encourage his people to not come to church so that others can come and hear the gospel. And so Barnum, of course, was aware of that kind of popularity. He interpreted it as attractive, 
impressive, miraculous kind of a thing. And so what if we bring him to America? He can get crowds going here, and, and then we'll bring the animals, and then we'll bring, you know. That was his idea. So he asked Charles Spurgeon, and Spurgeon responds in a telegram quoting Acts 8.20. May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Spurgeon knew where that power came from. He knew what it was. He knew about grace. He knew about Jesus. He knew about the message. He wasn't as focused on the miracles. And while much of our experience of God is supernatural, it is miraculous, I don't want to downplay miracles. We must be careful to follow Peter and not Simon in the story. So let's look at what Peter thought, what the apostles thought about their ministry. Where was the real power? Now, Peter's response to Simon, this harsh and swift response to his offer of money for the power of the Holy Spirit, exposed how different the apostolic approach was from Simon's magical Christianity. In the ministry of the Spirit-filled church, which is the book of Acts, miracles accompanied the preaching of the gospel. There were lots of miracles. But it is the message that was supposed to transform people. It wasn't the miracles. Genuine converts in the book of Acts are not won by miracles. They are won by the message. Now look at the, I'll show you from Scripture, okay. Look at the description of the Samaritan revival in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord pay attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now, if you read that, there are miracles, sure. There are amazing signs. People are being healed. They're being freed from demonic oppression. And yet, you see that it is the proclamation of Christ that people paid attention to. It was the preaching of the gospel that drew people to Christ. It wasn't the miracles. The miracles pointed to the message of the gospel. They were important as signs authenticating that message, but they were not the message. In verse 12, But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. When they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. They believed what he was saying. They believed the message. They liked the miracles. It was important. But they believed the message about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. Why did they get baptized and join the church? It's because of the message. Because they believed the good news. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. What was the deciding factor in them determining whether it was worth going or not, whether it was a real revival or not? It was that they had accepted the Word of God, that the message clicked, that people started believing in what was being preached. And so they said, we better send Peter and John because it looks like a real revival. They didn't send them because there were signs and wonders done in Samaria, but because the message was accepted. Now, another great passage that explained the relationship between the miraculous power and the message of the gospel is Acts 13, where there's another magician, and Paul confronts him, and the magician is meddling in Paul's ministry, which is never a good idea, we learn from the book of Acts. And so Paul confronts this magician, 
Now he's trying to explain the gospel to the, the, the politic, local authority, the proconsul. And so the magician gets involved and Peter makes him blind. Supernatural thing, miraculous thing. He just commands him to be blind. But look at the response of the, of the politician, verse 12 in Acts 13. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished. What would you expect? At the miracle, right? He was astonished at, at, at Paul making somebody blind. That's not what the text says. It says that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the message. The miracle was great, but he wasn't impressed with the miracle. He was impressed with the message. Now, if you read the account of the growth of the early church in Acts, you'll find many miracles performed by the apostles. However, miracles were not essential to their ministry. Preaching was. The verbal proclamation, verbal explanation of the gospel. In fact, I get a feeling that the apostles were never totally comfortable with the miraculous power that the Spirit gave them. Because time and time again, they almost get embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, you read those accounts when, when somebody just starts praising them and they're saying, that's not us. Don't pay attention to that. That's not us. It's God's power. Let me tell you about Jesus. That's the typical progression. A miracle happens, a crowd gathers, people are interested, and they preach the gospel. Because that's what they want to do. Time and time again, you find them having to explain what's happening. They're almost reluctant. I want to be careful here. But they were almost reluctant to perform miracles. So you get a feel that it kind of is done sometimes in the process of doing something else, like we read last week. But they were eager to preach. They were eager to preach. Miracles were signs that confirmed the truth of the Christian message. And they gave opportunities to proclaim the gospel, but the power to convert lay in the message and not the miracles. The apostles, it seems to me, refused to impress. And they refused to amaze through miracles. They wanted the focus to be on their message. The question is why? And the answer is because they were witnesses to Jesus. They were not witnesses to the miraculous power. They were not witnesses to the impressive power. They were not witnesses to their own movement. They were witnesses to Jesus. They wanted people to follow Jesus and not them. They didn't want people to join their movement or to sign on to their cause or support their ministry. They wanted people to meet Jesus, and Jesus was revealed primarily in the gospel. That's why Philip proclaimed the Christ when he went to Samaria. He didn't proclaim family values. He didn't proclaim healing from diseases. He proclaimed the Christ. He proclaimed the gospel, and you see that consistently through the book of Acts. Their focus was on Jesus. The reason they preached is because they wanted people to meet Jesus. They wanted to talk about him. They didn't want people to be impressed with their miracles. They wanted to be people to be impressed with Jesus and amazed at his grace. So let me finish this sermon by talking about the essence of the Christian message, the person of Jesus Christ and his amazing grace. Now think about Jesus' life and ministry. One thing that should strike us is that 
he, like the apostles, like his followers, refused to impress. Come on, if anybody could impress, right? It'd be Jesus, wouldn't it? That's why you don't believe those stories, that the, those made-up stories where Jesus would, would heal birds or make things out of clay and that fly out. Have you heard those stories? Those are just magic tricks. Jesus didn't do that. He wasn't after people's praise. He wasn't after trying to, to seem remarkable. If anybody could impress and amaze us with incredible miracles, it would be God, and yet Jesus was deliberately unimpressive. Think about his life. He's born to poor parents, right? Obscure town. The only, the only creatures that couldn't hold back their praise were the angels. So what did God do? God said, you can only worship in front of the shepherds. Don't tell anybody else. Just stay there with the shepherds. We want to contain this excitement. We don't want to impress. Isaiah 53, 2 says that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was not an impressive person. Most of his life, Jesus worked a job and lived in his hometown. Most of his life. Ordinary life. Then during the last three years of his life, he traveled and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Of course, he performed many miracles at that time. But consider that they were not meant to amaze people into following him. They were signs of his coming kingdom, the healing, restoration, freedom. It was all to point that the kingdom is coming, and it's coming through Jesus. And when the crowds got too amazed at the miracles... Please read through the Gospels and see that dynamic. As soon as people get too excited about Jesus, you know, making food out of nothing and, and, and walking on water and those kinds of things, as soon as people got too excited, Jesus would say something mysterious and confrontational. And he would say, are you staying or are you leaving? Based on the message, not on the miracles. In the Gospels, we see a difference between the crowds and the disciples. He would teach the crowds, and he would perform miracles, and people would flock to him, and people would want to hear what he had to say, and he would teach primarily through parables, which are incomprehensible, unless he also explained it to his disciples. But to get the explanation, he had to come closer. He had to come to him. He had to become part of his circle, part of his family, part of the group of people that followed him. The message, not the miracles, changed people. Jesus... Jesus was the kind of person that refused to perform miracles on demand. Time and time again, people would demand a sign. They would demand a miracle, and he would refuse to do that. He will teach instead. And he didn't perform miracles to impress influential, powerful people. Read where those miracles took place. Read who the audience were. They were not the great kings and politicians of his world. And when Jesus died on the cross, where were the crowds? He had barely a dozen followers who were trying to make sense of this king executed as a criminal. Was the cross impressive? Did Jesus amaze? Now remember, he was offered a chance to do that. Somebody asked him, why don't you save yourself and us too while you're at it? He refused to do that. And when he died, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. Okay, well, then we get to the resurrection, and we're thinking, okay, now, right? 
<laughs> all the restrictions gone. This is time to impress. Jesus is coming from the dead. And you read the accounts, and they're confused what happened. The, the message of the resurrection spreads by whispers, as one writer put it. It's not proclaimed. There's no trumpets. You know, there's no shining light, and everybody's gathered, and everybody knows that this great miracle happened. It still relies on faith. It still relies on the message, not the miracle. Of course it was a miracle. Of course, Jesus coming back from the dead, that is a miracle. It's an incredible miracle. But notice how it's communicated. It's communicated through witness accounts. It's communicated through preaching, through people coming and telling each other, this is what happened. They're saying, Jesus must have risen from the dead. And they're telling each other. Not impressive but life-changing. And so we need to look at Jesus' life, and if he is the essence of the Christian message, we need to ask, why did he not impress? Why did he not amaze? Why didn't he draw us to himself through the miraculous and the supernatural? And the reason is because he did not want us to be impressed with his power. He wanted us to be impressed that he gave up his power for us, because that is the gospel because that is grace, because that is what actually changes us. The essence of the gospel is grace, and it's no surprise that the most popular hymn in the Christian church is Amazing Grace. Everybody knows it. Even non-Christians know it. We sing it so often, because that is the, the core of our message. The core of our message is that whatever God is doing in our lives, it's a gift. When he saves us, it's a gift. When he blesses us, it's a gift. When he gives us the Holy Spirit, it's a gift. When he performs a miracle in your life, it's a gift. Because it is all by grace. And we have nothing to offer to him. We don't go to him and say, I have this amount of money, can I buy some of your power? And God says, I give you everything as a gift. And so Peter is right to get mad. He's right to get angry and say, what are you doing, Simon? You're trying to buy the gift of God? That's not how it works. Gifts are given, they're not purchased. The core of the message is that God saves us by grace. And we're not impressed by his power. We're impressed by his love. We're impressed that God would do that, that Jesus would come and live that kind of life. And through that life, through that death, through that resurrection, would save sinners like us. Does it for us. Given up his power for us so we could be changed. Henry Nouwen says, we are not healers, we are not reconcilers, we are not givers of life. We are sinful, broken, vulnerable people who need as much care as anyone we care for. The mystery of ministry is that we have been chosen to make our own limited and very conditional love the gateway for the unlimited and unconditional love of God. That's the ministry. That's the Christian life. Through our brokenness, through our weakness, through our unimpressive lives, God works, and the message is proclaimed. Now, our story ends with, really, a challenge. Peter says, repent, Simon. And Simon says, pray for me that I would repent. But there's no conclusion. We don't know if he repented or not. So I want to leave you with that challenge as well. Have you repented? Have you repented? Maybe for the first time, 
Now you know what Christianity is. It is grace. It is a gift of God. That's what it is. Jesus dying and rising for you. Have you repented from whatever you thought it was and embraced the message? Embrace the message and have that gospel change your heart. Has it happened to you? And if you're a believer, is it possible that you have misinterpreted what the gospel is? Is it possible that you look at the church as a magic show? That you look at our movement, at the evangelical movement, as an impressive thing, lots of power and spectacular displays and relevance. And if you do, please repent of that. We're going to come to the table. And if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, you are welcome to take communion with us. And if you missed it on the way in, there are some communion elements in the back and the fore. You're welcome to go get it. But only if you're a follower of Christ. This is not a time when you say, I do this and Jesus, you do that for me. No, this is accepting a gift because you've been welcomed at his table by grace. So if you're a believer, we welcome you to share communion with us. If you're not a believer, share Christ. Go to him. Take him. Let me pray briefly and then we'll take communion and we'll sing some more.